0: I think maybe the probably the better use of our time might be for you all to to just visit I mean uh, I really I really do mean that for lots of reasons Uh, the obvious of uh, that wonderful word fellowship I've never quite known what that was Uh, fellowship I knew it was probably something that that was legal Uh, But like most things that are, it held very little interest for me. (laughs) Uh, The other reason is that I've been at uh, Diocesan Council for three days, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday in Longview, and it ended yesterday afternoon at 3 and drove back last night and got in at 8 or 8.30 or midnight or something, I don't remember. It was dark. A better use of your time might be to visit rather than listen to me this morning because I'm a bit exhausted. Uh, I want to reflect. Uh, We're going to put the Joseph story on hold uh, and I'll pick it up next week because I think I ought to address some of the issues about counsel which have to do with sex. Uh, I yelled that a while ago. Nobody seemed to respond. I I was going to (coughs) ask... I was going to ask Sidney Buchanan here in front of me, who is uh, one of the nation's leading experts on constitutional law, if it was against uh, the amendment uh, on freedom of speech to yell sex in a crowded room. (laughs) I know it is to yell fire. Uh, Sex is okay. We have a ruling. (laughs) We have a ruling that sex is okay.
1: <laughs>
0: uh, are there any questions? <laughs> anyway, uh, human sexuality was one of the things that was talked about at council, which is uh, the, the newspapers absolutely loved it and tried to uh, uh, report about it as only the newspaper can't So, I will talk about that if that's what you want to, that's uh, what I want to talk about. But I want to talk more in the beginning about council. And that is, um, and those of you who's, who are feeling like somebody is throwing grains of sand in your eyes, my God, he's going to talk about council. Uh, just wait a minute. <laughs> it's going to be a lot more exciting than you think. Council is uh, an annual occasion in the Episcopal Church when representatives from each parish. Uh, ordained and, and uh, lay, uh, get together, and do the church's institutional business, which I think is a good thing. Uh, th- that probably is a good thing. We've got a budget to do, we've got decisions to make, we've got people to elect to send a general convention, which is every three years, and you elect lay people and, and to go represent you at that institutional body, so there are institutional realities that ought to be done. But. The church, when it gets together at council, remembers the history of the church, and some of the greatest pronouncements in the tradition of the church doing our theology have come out of great councils, like councils at Nicaea, uh, the council at Chalcedon. Uh, The first four councils of the church came about with the definitive word on the revelation of God in Christ, uh, based on scripture and tradition. So when we got together Longview, we felt we probably ought to make a statement equally significant as the Nicene Creed. (coughs) Well, nobody had really heard of Nicaea before the Creed either. Chamber of Commerce in Longview that (laughs) centuries from now a priest would stand up and say, let us cite together the Longview Creed. (laughs)
1: Now,
0: there's a friend of mine who believes that uh, H.W. Fowler in the modern English usage when he describes uh, the categories of people In the English-speaking world and their feelings about split infinitives probably has general application. Fowler says, in the English-speaking world, you may divide it into five categories concerning the split infinitive. Number one, those who neither know nor care what a split infinitive is. Number two, those who don't know what a split infinitive is, but care very much. (laughs) Number three, those who don't know and yet condemn. Number four, those who know and approve. And number five, those who know and distinguish. I feel that way about councils of the church they're very important to very few people. There are those who don't know and don't care what the church says when it comes together. And there are those who don't know what the church says but they care very much. (laughs) There are those who know what the church says and condemn. There are those who know and approve and there are those who know what the church says and want to distinguish among the issues and between particular issues i think we need to be discriminating and distinguishing about pronouncements from the church Uh, beth green who's a postulate for holy orders from this parish was elected as an alternate and she sat with us at council and I, having been at near twenty of those councils, her priest, and sponsored a seminary, I thought I might offer her wisdom as we went through the proceedings, and I began by saying that you will discover the church at its best and at its worst. Now, the church at its best is the church willing to take a question like human sexuality and debate it publicly and being in the anglican body welcoming views from from right and left and and above and below the church at its best is to say that we may not have the answers but we know that we must seek answers and so the church at its best comes and and tries to be at council as a body of Christ about some corporate wisdom concerning real issues that affect uh, humankind. That's the church at its best. The church at its worst is a church that says we're going to discuss human sexuality. We will allow three speakers on each side and limit them to two minutes apiece. Now anybody it seems to me who would respond to that challenge uh, probably deserves to be sainted and that is to re- address the issue of human sexuality in two minutes and then for the church to vote on a resolution concerning human sexuality having heard six arguments three four and three against. <laughs> uh, the conclusion was pretty much that of uh, the constitutional lawyer Mr. Buchanan uh, the church voted that sex was was okay There were some qualifications which I want to to address now. The first resolution of uh, some controversy and substance uh, dealt with uh, the question of homosexuality. Uh, We'll read the resolution and uh, then discuss it. Whereas the 1976 General Convention that's the, one, that's the triennial convention that all dioceses and each diocese sends representatives to in 1976. And I was there as a deputy of this uh, diocese. <clears throat> the 1976 General Convention of the Episcopal Church resolved, it was reiterated at the last General Convention where I voted, that homosexual persons are children of God who have a full and equal claim with all other persons upon the love, acceptance, and pastoral concern and care of the church. And whereas the same general convention, the two houses, that's the House of Deputies and Bishops, it's a bicameral system. Uh, The United States modeled its system on that of the Episcopal Church. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Those who issued the Constitution for the Episcopal Church were the ones who fashioned the Constitution for this country. Um, The two houses recommended that the Church in general engage in serious study and dialogue in the area of human sexuality, including homosexuality, as it pertains to various aspects of life. And whereas unreasonable fears and misconceptions about homosexuality and homosexual persons, and the consequent fear of such persons and their families to make themselves known in their church communities, have raised a wall of silence which divides the church at many levels. And whereas the AIDS crisis has exacerbated such fears, further isolating homosexual persons and their families, at the same time increasing their need for the love, acceptance, and pastoral concern and care of the church, and whereas such fears and misconceptions seriously hinder the Ministry of Reconciliation to which all members of the Church are called, be it resolved that the Bishop of Texas be requested to follow the recommendation of the 1985 General Convention, which urged each diocese to find effective ways to foster a better understanding of homosexual persons, to dispel myths and prejudices about homosexuality, and provide pastoral support for homosexual persons by appointing a pastoral concerns committee which has this charge. This resolution was passed um, fairly narrowly and it was passed with it was uh, sought to be amended and then the amendment was defeated and it was uh, passed with the amendment after the third whereas where it says whereas unreasonable fears uh, and misconceptions the word unreasonable was taken out. And so it was passed, and its essence was that since General Convention has voted that uh, homosexual persons are children of God and have a full equal uh, access uh, to the love and acceptance and pastoral concern of the church, that uh, we affirm that and then ask the bishop to set up a pastoral concerns committee uh, which would deal with this particular issue. Now, the other resolution on Uh, human sexuality was a companion resolution to the one that I just read you that passed, and it reads whereas many members of the church are disturbed and confused by what appears to them to be an abandonment in our society of traditional Christian morality concerning sexual behavior and whereas the church's attempt to offer acceptance love, forgiveness, and pastoral care to all persons, including homosexuals may add to the confusion noted. Be it therefore resolved that the 138th Council of the Diocese of Texas affirm that the biblically rooted and time-honored virtue of chastity remains the norm for all Christian persons, and that pastoral concern in ministry should not be construed as implying acceptance or approval of any sexual behavior other than which is appropriate between a man and a woman united in holy matrimony. Now this resolution also passed, but it passed with two amendments uh, and you can decide for yourself whether you think the amendments are substantial. And the second whereas, whereas the church's attempt to offer acceptance, love, forgiveness and pastoral care to all persons, including homosexuals, the phrase including homosexuals was struck. So it just reads, the church's attempt to offer acceptance, love, forgiveness and pastoral care to all persons may add to the confusion. So that's the way that reads. And then uh, an insightful delegate got up and said on the last sentence of the Resolve, which reads, For all Christian people, that pastoral concern and ministry should not be construed as implying, should not be construed as implying acceptance or approval of any sexual behavior other than which is appropriate between a man and a woman united in holy matrimony. The direct quotation from the delegate was, we probably should not get into the question on the floor of council as to what is appropriate sexual behavior between a man and a woman. He said, you know, there are many chandeliers in River Oaks. I'm quoting. It is in the Journal of Counsel. What he meant to say obviously was that it it should be reworded, uh, that we were not trying to decide what is appropriate sexual behavior. What it meant was behavior uh, that is between a man and woman united in holy matrimony. Now, uh, this passed uh, and so we have on the one hand a, a statement that says essentially that uh, homosexuals are children of God and that they deserve the pastoral care and concern of the church. And the other resolution says, but that should not be construed as to say uh, that the church condones or approves of sexual behavior outside of the bonds of holy matrimony. And those are the two companion resolutions. Now, let, let me uh, address this from, from my point of view. I was not one who chose uh, to try to express in two minutes uh, a theology of human sexuality. Uh, and and uh, had I ch- chosen to do that, I didn't, couldn't have gotten to the microphone in time to be one of the three persons to talk about it. And then I couldn't decide whether I was for or against it I didn't know what side to argue on, and so uh, therefore I thought, well, I'll um, uh, choke back my need for expression uh, because I can talk about tomorrow with people that, that love me. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: Which is not to be construed begin with this. I think the church is at its worst when it's trying to write resolutions about theology. Uh, uh, that is to say that we would vote a resolution about mystery. When we talk about human sexuality, we are talking about uh, first we're talking about gift. And secondly, we're talking about mystery. So we're talking about mysterious gifts. Human sexuality is one of the great gifts that we've been given for definition of what it means to be a person. A great gift of mutual enjoyment and fulfillment. One of the complicating factors of what it means to be a human being versus what it means to be an animal or what it means to be an angel, or what it means to be God. And so we have this mysterious gift called human sexuality. My sense is that human sexuality is like all of personality, and that is that it is given in general, and that is we are fashioned out of the same stuff in general. But human sexuality will have a personality to it, and that is to say uh, that whatever truth there is in general uh, gets interpreted and integrated through my own particularity. And it may be that my particularity is peculiarity. We also know uh, from watching nature that when anything is given out, it seems to be given out in, in broad degrees and grades and that if we would talk about sexuality uh, that we're not talking about everybody understanding or having the same sexuality, that is to say any more than everybody has the same personality. That we have different sexuality. We have in general and in common, but in particular because of our own heredity and our own environment, different views or experiences uh, with sexuality. The question of homosexuality uh, is uh, part of the realm of mystery. It seems as though uh, scientists, uh, psychologists, or the church, uh, have, none of us have been able to ascertain why some people are oriented homosexual and, and others are not, and why it seems the majority of people are oriented uh, heterosexual and a minority homosexual. Well, we can judge that probably if, if creation is to go on, uh, heterosexuality is a requirement uh, for creation to go on. And so we begin to think that that must be the normative uh, sexuality uh, because it is the majority. Now, why somebody is born homosexual and somebody is not, uh, the most homosexuals as interviewed and talked about seem to not have a choice about their orientation, that One is born homosexual uh, in the same way that one might have uh, uh, blue eyes or color of skin. With this exception that if you take, if we look at nature once again as having sometimes shades of colors that that run uh, through a rainbow of creation, that if heterosexuality is a 10 and homosexuality is a 1, that uh, each person's sexuality will not either be a 10 or a 1, but maybe a 9 or a 2, and they're they're gradations. And and so evidently, whatever is possible uh, in terms of sexual orientation uh, is probable. And that is to say, whatever is possible, somebody probably uh, will be. And if it's possible to be homosexual, somebody will be. And if it's possible to be heterosexual, somebody will be. And if we look at the norm for creation being heterosexual, there probably will be more heterosexuals and homosexuals and so forth. Now, the question then becomes, uh, what is the morality, then, of sexual behavior? Well, the Church has wrestled with this if we have been given gift, gift of sexuality. What is the purpose of the gift? One of the great glories of being human is that we've been given a variety of gifts. And then we've been given experience and reason to try to figure out, now, what is the purpose of this gift? And it's interesting the way it all works out because we begin to see that the body, as gift, but the body is not an end in itself because the body is an analogy for the gift of the spirit. For instance, uh, it doesn't take us to be too old to realize that our eyesight has an analogy in the spirit and it's called insight. Isn't that nice? And so as we mature we begin to see that we are not body or so we are body and soul; that we are psychosomatic beings, and that our eyesight and our insight uh, one feeds the other. So, what is the purpose of the gift of sexuality? Well, the church has wrestled with this. The, the The religions have wrestled with: What is the nature of the gift of sexuality? Why is it that God has made us sexual? It's a gift. Everything that God created, he said, was good. Well, the nature of the gift seems to have been best, I think, discovered initially by the Hebrews in Genesis, where they begin to talk about the nature of sexuality is an analog for the nature of the soul And that what sexuality, as instinct and appetite, drives one toward is union. Now, of course, the word union comes from the Latin for one, unus. So, there's something about the sexual drive that pushes us toward another. And through that drive toward another, we seek union. That seems to be a primary function of sexuality. The thing that distinguishes from the animals is that we're clear with the animals, or it seems to be clear that their sexuality is instinct and appetite. It is instinctual, and it's appetite in the sense that it is insatiable. It occurs again and again and again. And that the goal of sexuality in animals is procreation alone and that's the way the system works the way creation procreates that it's days in being but because they have only particular times that they're interested in sexuality Now, human beings <coughs> since they don't have a time that they're just interested in sexuality that they're interested in sexuality as power drive as instinct and appetite at all times, then we can ascertain that there's more going on with humans because we are called to a different order than the animals. That we are called to be at least instinct and appetite, but we're able to transcend, if you remember from my lectures on humanity, we're able to transcend simply instinct and appetite. We're called to another order other than simply instinct and appetite. And that's why we say that dogs... animals mate and human beings make love because what's going on with human beings is something other than simply procreation or instinct and appetite that's going on but what the church or what theology is saying is that the lowest level of sexuality is instinct and appetite and if you never rise above that then you are being satisfied with the inhuman nature of sexuality. Are you with me? The reason for that it's inhuman is because animals can do that too and so we're not anything above animals if we're just instinctual and uh, fulfilling, satiating appetite through sexuality. That it is animal behavior. And we could say even that that's more descriptive than it is judgmental. It's judgmental in the sense that if you're satisfied to be an animal then you will never experience the giftedness of being human. And that's what we're called into, is humanity. And so instinct and appetite is inhuman, and if you just mate or just procreate, then you are of the order of animals. But you're called to make love, which is the second part of the gift. The first one is procreation. The second part is that union. And now we're at the Hebrew poet who said, the word for sexual intercourse, yada is the same word we'll use for one with God. It is. The word yadah means to have sexual intercourse with another person, and the word yada means to know God intimately. Isn't that nice? So what, what they were saying is, yes, sex has to do with making other human beings. That's part of the drive, part of the instinct. And human beings are going to do that. That's one of the things the Church needs to recognize. No matter what we say about the nature of sexuality, the Church is going, I mean, human beings are going to be sexual. There are those who neither know uh, nor care Uh, what a split infinity is. (laughs) So the Church can't say that the world is really waiting to hear from us about the nature of sexuality you're going to go on and be sexual. The church can't have its head in the sand saying that human beings are out there restraining themselves until they get the word from the church (laughs) as what is the nature of this uh, that is driving me. They're going to be driven. Now what the church wants to say to human beings who are sexual and who are relating to one another sexually and that is I'm now talking about genital sex the church is saying well there are two purposes for that mysterious gift one is procreation now is your involvement in genital sex are you being responsible with this side of the gift and that is procreation is the function of this to procreate that's part of Roman Catholic doctrine. You remember the Roman Catholic Church? Yeah. (laughs) There are those who don't know but care. You remember... The Roman Catholic Church has gotten itself into a, a logical corner, which is where logic tends to lead... I like mystery is because it surrounds you and there are no corners it's surround there are no corners logic leads you into corners so I like a little salt of mystery into the logic so the Roman Catholic Church has said well if we're going to be involved in this genital sex then part of the reason for it has to be part of the reason of the gift which is procreation and you remember that doctrine that you shouldn't do this unless you're procreating or you can take your temperature and not be driven to it at certain times during the month or fashioning a great term which I think we can say in, in public uh, the term coitus interruptus this is a great term but it seems to me it Begs the question of this instinct and appetite. <laughs> Why are you doing this, if not to procreate children? Because you full know, in Interruptus you're interrupting the will of God. It's one of those logical corners in which the church finds itself time and time again. Which is okay. Church is a human institution. It's trying to decide what is the gift and mystery of this thing called human sexuality. But the second side of that, you, brings us to the place that we can begin to say, maybe there's something else going on other than the gift for procreation. Maybe the Hebrews were right. Well, we're really seeking human beings, not just animals, that we are instinct and appetite at the second level, that the body becomes a metaphor or analogy to what's really going on. And that is just like eyesight has a function it helps you to be mobile uh, in a world but it also allows you to have insight now maybe sexual intercourse as metaphor means that people are trying to get inside one another oh so maybe he's right that is the hebrew poet who says yada which is sexual intercourse and intimate knowledge of God has the same word to it so in a biblical sense we can say I knew her in the biblical sense I had intercourse with her yes but I sought to know her what I was looking for was not a physical union I'm now moving to significant theology does anybody want to go with me? (laughs) there are those who neither know Uh, I'm not just seeking a physical union here as the animals or as we do in procreation you know you can procreate without loving somebody you can mate without making love I'm not speaking just a seeking here a physical union but I'm seeking a spiritual union now we're at the human level That sexual intercourse is not just mating, it is seeking spiritual union. Now we've come to what is normative for comparing all sexuality. The word in the second resolution with which I agree is that all sexuality ought to be compared to marital sexuality. It is anyway, premarital, post-marital, extramarital,
1: <laughs>
0: well it is, <clears throat> and it ought to be, because, let me go back, I'm going to have to go forward, <laughs> I'm out of time, uh, you think I could have done this in two minutes? The mystery is that it's not just body it's also soul and so the physical union is a symbol of the spiritual union and so we say in the church that marriage is spiritual union and any sexual union between human beings must be having as its goal spiritual union, not satiation of instinct and appetite alone. Now the second reason, as we say, marriage is the norm for sexual union is because sometimes babies get made. And if a baby gets made, that's an incredible responsibility, that's another human being, and God has given you a great gift to be a co-creator, as a procreator, and you have created something with God called another human being, and you have responsibility for that, and for his or her sexuality, so a mommy and a daddy ought to be committed to one another before they make babies, because you're going to have to raise the baby, and you need two sexes in order to teach this person that sexuality is good. Part of a subcultural pattern of children raised by only fathers or mothers brings a neurotic subculture we have a subculture in this United States that is matriarchical and we have men who don't know what it means to be men they overcompensate with macho because they've been raised with mothers and they're reacting against it now what the church wants to say is in your genital sex are you just as the animals or are you speaking Seeking spiritual union. The norm is marriage, and are you seeking in your sexual union a spiritual knowledge where you grow and know more and become more, create more? Or are you, as the animals, reacting out of appetite and instinct? The church wants to know. The church wants you to ask yourself that question. The church wants society to ask itself that question promiscuity is what the church is very concerned about only because the natural law has taught the church that nature won't stand promiscuity. It will judge it every time. Too much of anything is too much. And so, we need to rotate our crops. We need to thin our forest. We need to be temperate and moderate in our appetites. We need to... Tell them I'll be right there. (laughs) We need to be careful about overeating. Human beings can do this. This is part of consciousness. And so of our sexuality... Yes, one of the parts of the gift is to procreate, but the second part of it is to, to seek spiritual union. And the Church says, Are you seeking spiritual union? The norm for that is marriage because you make a public commitment that you are. The norm for that is marriage because... Uh, You might make babies, and if you do make babies, you need to be responsible about that human being. You need to provide a wholesome environment. Wholesome doesn't necessarily mean, tell them I'll be right there. (laughs) Wholesome doesn't mean, uh, particularly uh, Norman Rockwell painting, wholesome uh, means offering wholeness. Now that's what the church is after, and I'm after that too, and I, I think that we ought to be in discussion about that. I think we ought to be in a discussion about what constitutes a spiritual union. When is it constituted? You know, people talk about marriage as being consummated. That means that people had sexual intercourse, which is, uh, is interesting because co- co- consummating something means ending it. That's when it begins. <laughs> now, what is the c- nature of commitment and sexuality? Somebody is objective, uh, and scientific as masters and johnson have said we don't know which comes first commitment or good sex but you never have one without the other And so the church is talking about spiritual union and is talking about commitment as a norm and anybody who's involved in genital sex you must ask yourself are you seeking what god has given you in the gift and that is to be one with this person and to be one with god and can you do that without breaking any other relationships in the mystery of things that there may be some exceptional situations. And I would like for the church to recognize there may be exceptional situations, that's all. I I wouldn't even want to enumerate them because then once you enumerate what the exception is it becomes a general rule. Do you know that? If you say this is a, for instance of an exception, then somebody says yeah, (laughs) we're exceptional. So let's just say that there are exceptions and we'll hammer out those in the situation rather than legalizing them by saying these are always exceptions the norm is the spiritual union between a man and a woman in holy matrimony because that seems to be the high calling of human beings to be one within one another and when we're one with one another evidently there's a union with god also the mystery, the mystery of holy matrimony signifies unto us the mystery of the relationship between Christ and his church, or between God and his people. And that's what we're about in terms of human sexuality. We're not about legislating who can do it when and where and with whom. What we're interested in doing is trying to raise the question of is it the best of what you're called to be? Is this the best of what you're called to be. Well, I'm out of time and I'm not uh, finished, so if if there's something that you radically disagree with of what I've said or something that you don't understand or want to take me on about, I was going to agree with you, but I didn't have time. If there's something that you really agree with and really like about what I said, uh, then tell that person who didn't. (laughs) Because this is controversial and people have strong feelings because it is a value-rich area, and it ought to be. And I think the church ought to be talking about it. I don't know that the church ought to be legislating about it. But I think the church ought to be talking about it. And I think we ought to hear from all sides. You've just heard from one side today. Thank you.